Well, happy Easter to you. My name is Rob. I'm the senior pastor here, and a warm welcome to you this morning. I have a question for you. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in bona fide, honest-to-goodness, act-of-God miracles? I think that's an appropriate question to ask on Easter Sunday morning. Now, I don't think I have to go out on much of a limb here. It sounds like a lot of people are saying yes with me, and I'm in that camp as well. Uh, Now, the next question is, have you ever seen a miracle? And I'm not talking about, I've seen a miracle uh, like this. Uh, I was driving down the road, and, and there's this car, and it was coming my way, and it just missed me by that much. I mean, that could have gone really bad. It was a miracle. Or, or this one. The Chicago Cubs won the World Series. Miracle. That's how I hear people talk about miracles. But that's not what I mean by miracle. I don't mean something that could have gone this way, but it ended up going a different way, or the losingest team ever in the history of sports to finally win. No, when I say miracle, I mean something that has happened that is beyond human ability, beyond natural explanation. Oh, you mean that kind of miracle. Well, sure, why not? Now we feel a little bit more uncertain. By definition, that kind of miracle doesn't happen every day. In fact, when someone's sitting across the table from you telling you that they've seen that kind of miracle, you kind of raise your eyebrow a little bit and say, hmm, I wonder if they've had a little extra to drink today or um, if they're going a little loopy. And we feel that way because those types of miracles are, by definition, rare and beyond explanation, natural explanation. Even in the Bible, God's book, as Christians would say, as you're flipping through the pages and looking at what the Bible says, you don't find miracles on every single page. And the Bible covers a lot of history. You would think that miracles are just happening all the time because this is a book about God, and yet, not that often when you're looking through the Bible. They go beyond natural explanation. And when God uses a miracle in the Bible, it's because he wants to make a point. The resurrection of Jesus is this kind of miracle. It defies natural explanation. And so if you find yourself uh, on the fence of indecision when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, you're actually in pretty good company. Jesus' own disciples found themselves on the fence of indecision. Uh, Some of them, Matthew, Peter, James, and John, just weren't sure. I mean, these are the guys that were walking with him. They heard him talking about it, and yet this event was so fantastic, so beyond sight, that they really just didn't know what to do with it. One disciple, though, above the others, didn't know what to do with it. In fact, his name has become synonymous with doubt. Thomas. Doubting Thomas. And I'd like to take a look at his story with you this morning. 
You see, in this story, we see a man who is a doubter who becomes one of the most faithful proclaimers of who Jesus is. It's found in John chapter 20. If you have your Bible, you can flip to John chapter 20, and it'll start at verse 24. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, the Bible, we will have it up on the screen so that you can follow along with us. John chapter 20, verse 24. It reads like this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put on your hand, uh, out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I would like to ask three questions of this story. Three questions that this story in turn asks us. Can I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? That's a good question. Thomas, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Doesn't sound like a guy that's drank the Kool-Aid, does it? doesn't sound like a guy who just takes his friend's words for it. In fact, I think it's this. Unless I see Jesus with my own eyes, I'm not going to believe in him. Now, to be fair to Thomas, a lot has just gone wrong in his world. He has been following Jesus for the better part of three years. He has watched Jesus heal sick people. He's watched Jesus say to a man who was a paralytic, stand up, the man stood up. He multiplied bread in the presence of thousands. He walked on water. He calmed a storm with the sound of his voice. He called into the tomb of Lazarus, and Lazarus walked out of the tomb. And yet, three days ago, Jesus had been brutally murdered on a cross. All of his ambition, all of his goals, all of his hopes were dashed to pieces on that cross. Jesus hung there bloody and mutilated and he died alongside of common thieves. And now, His ten friends are saying that they've seen this risen Jesus just walking around. Thomas' words 
translate something like this in the Greek. I will absolutely not believe that. His question is like the question many people have. Can I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And I think that we actually need to reframe that question a little bit and ask the question, am I even open to the idea that Jesus could have risen from the dead? You see, it's important to acknowledge something right off the bat. History is not as nice and satisfying as science. You do not reproduce historical events in the science lab. History just has this way of being history. It just keeps going along. And I can't hit the rewind button and make sure that that happened and then rewind again and just keep checking on it. It doesn't work like that. In fact, uh, the resurrection, though, when you think of it historically is a more fully attested historical event than some of the other events in history that we just simply take for granted. So, if you don't bypass the investigation by just simply saying, miracles don't happen, then the resurrection actually has a lot of evidence. But people do tend to bypass the process. I want you to just, for a moment, let down your guard, and hear some of the evidence. In fact, I'm going to propose it to you from an atheist, from a skeptic, and from an ex-con. The atheist, George Ludman, is a uh, German New Testament scholar, historian, and atheist. He was once a professing Christian, but he subsequently walked away from the faith because when he was looking at the New Testament records, he felt like they were not historically reliable. And yet, of the resurrection, he wrote this. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Bart Ehrman is a distinguished professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is one of the most respected scholars in the field of New Testament studies, and he is also an agnostic. He said this, The most important thing to stress is that there are two historical realities that simply cannot be denied. The followers of Jesus did claim that Jesus came back to life, and if they had not claimed that, we would not have Christianity today. There would not be over two billion people around the world saying we are Christians. So they did claim it. And moreover, they did claim that they knew he rose precisely because some of them saw him alive again afterwards. No one can doubt that. And now the ex-con. The ex-con ended up becoming a Christian because he was a part of a scandal. And he saw how quickly people give up the lie when they're involved in a scandal and things start going wrong. His name is Charles Colson. He once served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon. He was famously imprisoned in the 70s for the Watergate scandal. And while in prison, Colson became a follower of Jesus. What convinced him of the truth was the fact that his administration had crumbled so quickly when the lie had been unearthed. Listen to what he says. The real cover-up, the lie, 
could only be held together for two weeks, and then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all those around the president were facing was just embarrassment, maybe imprisonment, but no one was going to die. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, executions. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those disciples would have cracked before being beheaded? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities. None did. Blaise Pascal put it like this, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Here's the truth. Thomas is no different from you and me. He is the type of person who needs to see the evidence in order for his worldview to be changed. So the question that we have to ask ourselves when it comes to the realities of God and Jesus and this resurrection we're talking about is, am I even open to the possibility? And if you are, explore it. Here's another question. Can I trust Jesus with my life? Notice that in verses 26 and 27, Jesus appears. He says, peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You know, it's almost impossible to pinpoint why Thomas doubted the resurrection. It might have had something to do with hopeless grief. Uh, sometimes when things go so wrong, you just can't even get outside of your own world. You're grieving. It might have something to do with anger. If all of your hopes and expectations are placed into a person and they're killed, you might get mad. Or it might have something to do with the fact that in his own day and age, people really just did not believe that people walked out of graves. It wasn't like they were all superstitious and that's just what people generally believed. Whatever it was, and I think it has something to do with all three of these, Jesus ultimately addresses the core of the issue. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He is basically saying to Thomas, it's okay to put your complete confidence in me. I won't let you down. I am real. I am here. You can trust me with your life. You see, Jesus is willing to meet you where you are. And you can trust him. You can trust him with your fear. If Jesus really rose again from the dead, then you have nothing to fear in this world. You don't have to fear wars. You don't have to fear cancer. You don't have to fear whether or not you will maintain your job. If Jesus rose from the dead, then nothing else matters because he has conquered death itself. You don't have to, or you can trust him with yourself. So many times in life, we have entrusted ourselves to another person, and in doing that, our hope of trust was dashed upon the rocks. 
Let's be honest, there were people that we entrusted ourselves to who should have been trustworthy. They should have loved us. They should have been caring towards who we are. But people aren't perfect, except for one, Jesus. And if Jesus rose again from the dead, then he is powerful over life itself, and he can keep his promises. Maybe you say to yourself, well, I just don't want to give up control of my life. If I follow Jesus, doesn't that mean that life is just going to get a lot less fun? If Jesus did not rise from that grave, you don't have to worry about it. You can take this whole Christianity thing, you just put it on the shelf, you walk about your life, and you do what you've been doing. No big deal, doesn't matter. But if Jesus rose from the dead, if he did, it changes everything. If he rose from the dead, that means that he's the author of life. And if he's the author of life, he created life, which means he knows what the best sort of life is. Sometimes we're asking ourselves the question, if I follow this Christianity thing, is it going to completely ruin my life? Is it going to make my life less fun? But let me just say this, if he created it, he knows what the best sort of life is. And there are billions of Christians around the world who are today living the best sort of life, the sort of life where there's joy, fulfillment, purpose, meaning, the type of life that we all want. Jesus' resurrection provides all of these things. It's historically reliable. It's proof that he's worthy of your trust. And here you see Thomas connecting all the dots as this physical Jesus is standing before him. He's looking out and he's saying to himself, this means something. Every argument that I have has been leveled. And if Jesus is standing here, it means one thing and one thing only. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. The doubter makes the most faithful affirmation of who Jesus is in all the Gospels. He is Lord and God. He is the creator of the universe. He is the originator of life. He is all-powerful, ever-faithful, all-knowing, all-sufficient God. Do you know the real Jesus? He was not just a kind man, though he was kind. He was not just uh, a moral teacher who led people towards enlightenment, though his teaching is very enlightening. He was not just a moral example to us, though we should follow him. He is God-made flesh. He is God with us. He is God who stepped out of the splendor of eternity in order to walk amongst us and lay down his life for you. This is who we're talking about. Jesus says to Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed. Blessed means more than just to be declared that you will be happy. It means that the most fundamental relationship that any human being could ever want or desire has been made right your relationship with God. Peter later wrote in his first epistle, 
You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. You see, you can trust if Jesus rose from the dead that he can give you eternal life. How do you get eternal life? Well, the Bible says you believe in him. Have you done that? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? He is trustworthy with your fears. He is trustworthy with your doubts. He's worthy of your intellect. Are you willing to entrust yourself to him? Third question. Will believing in Jesus really change my life? Notice in verse 31, John says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. This is really what it all boils down to. Can Jesus change my life? Sure, you're talking about this eternity thing, and that sounds great, but I need my life to change now. I have a marriage that's on the rocks now. I'm struggling with depression now. I'm going to work all the time and finding that it really doesn't seem to matter now. I was told that if I followed this American dream that I've invested my life in things like education and riches, that when I attained that high level, then I would be finally happy. But I've gotten there and I'm not. Is there something better? John 10.10 10. Jesus says there is. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Other translations say abundant life. It means exceedingly, beyond measure, a quantity so abundant as to be considerably more than what one would expect or anticipate. Can Jesus change your life? Yes, absolutely, he can change your life. Just this past Friday, we engaged in a Good Friday service where we reflected on the meaning of the cross. And during that service, everyone had a little sheet of paper in their hand, and it just simply read, I have been saved from. And we reflected on the various different circumstances that we found ourselves in before we came to know Jesus and what Jesus saved us from. And it was awesome to see 140 people come forward and share their testimony of what Jesus has done. And today, all of those little pieces of paper read paid in full. That's what Jesus did on the cross when he shed his blood he paid for all of those sins. But it goes beyond this. Jesus didn't just pay for your sins. He replaces that nature, that impulse that caused you to want to live life that, like that with a new nature. He does a heart renovation. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He begins by identifying those areas in your life that you need to uh, have right with God, and he starts working on those things. I know for me what it was. I don't know what it was for you, but for me, it was arrogance and selfishness. I was so 
arrogance. And let me just say this, if you're an arrogant person, your world's really, really small. It's pathetically small. But when Christ came into my life, God's spirit identified this sin and he began to work on my heart. He took away selfishness and he replaced it with his virtues, love. You can't be selfish and loving. They don't work well together. Loving is always others focused. The more access you give him in your heart, the more he works in your life. He takes these old habits and he replaces them with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This new life will exceed anything that you've ever expected or anticipated. You remember that testimony that Jay shared with us earlier. Trusting Jesus was not just an academic exercise for Jay. It had to do with his real life. It had to do with sins that were coming along with him every single day, sins that were affecting his personal relationships, his marriage. God's Spirit came in. Jay wasn't just adding a little dash of Jesus to his life. He was giving his life over. This is what happens when you trust Jesus. He can work on your deepest needs. For Jay, that meant a better relationship with his wife. Let me just say this. Anytime I look at Jay and Kim today, I say to myself, I know that Jesus can change lives. He can change lives because they have an awesome marriage. That's real. That's not academic. That's what Jesus can do in your life if you would be willing to go beyond sight. Would you pray with me?